Hi everybody, we've got our favourite ex-drug squad officer, undercover copper Keith Banks. He is back today. He's not telling us stories from his current book, which is Drugs, Guns and Lies, but from his upcoming book, which is yet to be titled, so you've all got a sneak peek. Today's stories involves hostages and bombs and buildings and a whole lot of craziness. It's an absolute joy to speak to Keith. If you haven't listened to the other previous episodes, go back and listen to them. They're titled Keith Banks Part two and then you've got the original which is Keith Banks Drugs, Guns and Lies. Go back and listen to those ones. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did recording it. Enjoy. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Okay. <laughs> so, um, where were we? Actually, so yeah, the um, the MLC building, and um, the other thing um, you asked about medals before, and this mm. is this was a really nice thing back in those days. Back back in those days, there was a, a perception or a concept or or a policy, I suppose, in policing that if you received a police valor medal, then you weren't eligible for any national medals decorations right so there's there's a whole uh honors and awards thing in the australian that the australian government has um and the highest uh medal available to police and civilians is a cross of valor and a star of courage then a bravery medal then it goes down the scale um so when when i was um when i received my police valor medal um it will make sense at the end of the story but this particular person was charged with offenses and the judge recommended i be um, nominated for bravery decorations, the Australian government, the police force said, no, no, we've already given him one. Um, so lo and behold, I don't know, maybe 12 or months later or so, um, I received a letter from the Governor General to say that I was being awarded the bravery medal. And I uh, went, where the hell has this come from? And it turned out, and you, and you can't track down people, which is really sad, because I wanted to find who nominated me to say thank you. Um, as far as I could get to, it was apparently an elderly lady who lived in the country in Queensland who'd seen news footage of me and thought, that young man needs a medal. Isn't that sweet? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so there you go. So one sunny Saturday afternoon, um, I had finished meeting an undercover guy that I was controlling, mm-hmm. controlling meaning, you know, I was the supervising guy taking exhibits and running sheets and seeing that his welfare was okay because I'd, I'd actually taken a great interest in welfare for undercover cops because I didn't have any myself when I was doing it. So that became part of me paying it forward and making sure that, you know, undercover guys were really well looked after. Um, so at any rate, my partner and I had gone out there, seen the undercover, do what we did, and uh, and we thought, okay, um, time to go back to the office. And I think it was about three o'clock or so, and it was a beautiful Brisbane afternoon, um, you know, clear blue sky, God, I don't know, 26, 27 degrees, you know, one of those spectacular days. So being younger males, uh, we decided to drive down Queen Street or through Queen Street or something and look at all the pretty girls before we went back to the office, which is <laughs> quite normal, I thought. <laughs> um, so... 
I'm actually just looking about, I've just found a document. So 27th of November, 1993. Um, so anyway, we were driving uh, on our way there and we uh, had a, um, or a radio call came over from the police operations area, any unit shots fired in the MLC building. So I can't remember where we were. I think we're at Coronation Drive for those of those people who know Brisbane. So we were in a, uh, a covert car that still had a, um, a siren and all that sort of stuff. So hit the siren and, and drove straight into there because, you know, any time you hear a job like that, you drop everything and go. Um, and around that time, there'd been some, you know, there'd been the Hoddle Street massacre in Melbourne. Yeah. There'd been the um, Strathfield, I think it was, shopping centre massacre in Sydney. Um, this is before Port Arthur, of course, but mm. there, there'd been a number of, of shootings, mass shootings in Australia. So the first thing that any cop would think is, Jesus, you know, shots fired in the centre of the city, we've got to get in there because it could potentially be another one. So the MLC building was a bit of a landmark and still is in Brisbane. Um, it had, I can't remember how, story, how, how tall it was, maybe 20 storeys or something, but it had a, um, a weather beacon on the top, you know, that, that would shine red if there was rain coming and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So anyway, um, raced in there and got there, and I can still see it in my mind's eye. There was a, uh, a Channel 10 camera woman, if that's the correct um, terminology, standing at the front of the building filming into the foyer. There were some cops there. There was no cordon created, and it just... You know, there was no no control of anything. And at that stage, um, I always was a bit of a rebel, so my hair was longer than it should have been, and I was wearing a pair of jeans and a polo shirt, I think. So had my firearm, had my spare ammo, all that stuff. And uh, my partner and I raced, jumped out of the car. He raced down to the side of the building, and I raced up to the front, grabbed her and dragged her away out of the way, and then started just taking control. Um, uh, so I was used to that, I guess. And so formed a, formed a cordon, um, you know, called for negotiators, blah, 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 and then raced up the stairs and, uh, and I saw a uniform sergeant standing there who I knew sort of, a guy called Mel. And I, I, said, I said to Mel in a very loud voice, where is this prick? And, uh, and Mel sort of looked at me and, and shifted his eyes sideways and went, ah, oh, Banksy, he's just in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I took a couple of steps and the reason I say it was a beautiful, bright, sunny day was the foyer of the building was, um, you know, if you walk from bright sunlight into a shaded area, your eyes actually have a few seconds to adjust. Yeah. So I took a couple of steps in with my firearm in my hand and looked and peeked around the corner and my eyes were adjusting and I saw this guy sitting against the wall with a rifle across his lap and um, a cardboard box. And army webbing, and webbing is the stuff, you know, that they put over their shoulders to carry all their equipment, and bearded, um, quite overweight, and and I thought, oh, he's obviously just heard what I've said. Um, not good. And, uh, and, uh, what a great rapport building, you know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> What's the special way to influence people or whatever it is? <laughs> that's right. How to win friends and influence people. That's it. That's and, it. And so, uh, and I just said, okay, mate, take it easy, you know. Um, and he looked up at me and said, who are you? And, I, and it's one of those surreal things, right? I've got a firearm in my hand. I was probably 10 feet away maybe, and, uh, and I swore I'm a cop. And he said, prove it. Went, okay. So I reached in the back of my pocket, pulled out my badge and showed him. And then he said, uh, he said, all right, why don't you come and have a talk to me? 
Now, completely against any tactical training, completely against any survival, operational survival stuff. I, and I still don't know why I did it. I have no idea. But I looked at him and I turned and I handed my gun to Mel, um, who'd followed me in. And then I took a few steps forward and just said, my name's Keith, what's your name? Because that's what negotiators say. That's all I've ever heard them say. You know, is, is, is tell them your name. And, um, and then he, um, and, I, and, and this is, you know, or even all these years later, I can still vividly remember this um, because I thought I was going to die. Um, and the reasons for that become apparent soon. So <laughs> he said, my name's Frank. I went, okay, Frank, um, how are you going? And he had a T-shirt with an Indian motorcycle. So Indian is a brand of motorcycle. And at that stage, I was riding a Harley. I'd, uh, I'd had my midlife crisis early. And, uh, and I said, so, well, Indian, mate, you, uh, you ride. And he said, nah, just like the shirt. I thought, well, okay, there goes that rapport. Um, and then I took a couple of more steps just to try and calm him down because all I thought, I thought he's got the rifle, you know, probably not, he's not pointing it at me, so maybe we can just, you know, solve this right here. And I knew Mal was um, behind me to the left. And, and that's the funny thing about cops. I, I didn't know him very well. He didn't know me very well. But when there's a dangerous situation like that, a cop, a good cop, will be right there to back you up. You know, so it doesn't become a, he's my mate, I'll look after him. It becomes a, he's a cop, I'm going to be here to back him up. Mel, to his credit, um, walked straight in to give me backup. So then I noticed, you know, Frank was sitting there in the, the car built box in front of him. And I said, um, I said, so what's in the box? And he said, uh, this. And he, he kept his right hand on the firearm, right, with his finger outside the trigger guard, which always tells you, tells you someone's had military training. And I'm looking at this thinking, gee, this guy knows what he's doing. And he reached into this little cardboard box and pulled something out and tossed it at me. And I'd said before that I'd been in bomb disposal for a while. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was a half a stick of, of uh, gelic night. And it was what was called sweating, which means that it was so... Um, decomposed that the nitroglycerin which is the stuff that goes bang was starting to leak out of the casing and that that means it's so that's not normal no that means it's unstable oh, and holy. that means it can be detonated fairly easily like i don't know if you dropped it on the floor <laughs> oh so it doesn't need a it doesn't need a charge no, no it, it unstable gelic night yeah if you bump if it's sweating enough and you bump it it can just sympathetically detonate holy cannoli yeah that's yeah i, I sort of said something like that to myself um <laughs> and I, i'm and sure I, it was a lot more colorful <laughs> <Keith>. <laughs> and, and i caught this thing and went oh this isn't good and so, and then, come on what did you really what, what did you really say internally I, I think it was something like for fuck's sake and <laughs> And then I handed it over to Mal and said, mate, take this outside and be very careful with it. So then I noticed uh, inside the box, so again, and I, I, I must have taken another step or two closer or something. I thought, you know, Jesus. And I looked in there and there were a number of sticks of gelignite and, and they had, he, he had wired them with three electronic detonators. And detonators are the things that, that you put inside a stick of gelignite they're little, uh, little things about the size of a cigarette, maybe. Put mm -hmm. them inside any explosive, really. And, uh, and when the detonator, it has a positive and a negative lead, when that's attached to a battery, 
positive negative, it forms an electronic circuit, ignites the detonator, which then ignites the explosive. So young Frank had three of them wired up to what turned out to be 16 sticks of jelly night. Um, Holy all, moly. Oh, yeah. All wired in, a, in an electronic or an electric series. Won't, even, won't bore you with the detail around that. But he also then had a 12-volt battery, which is, you know, the old dolphin torches, the big plastic torches that yeah. um, things. The big square ones. The yeah, big yeah, the big ones, square yeah. ones. So, so this is the battery that goes into one of those. So he had that sitting uh, to his left with the wires from these three detonators leading to the battery and he had them separated in his left hand and all he had to do was just put them like, like two. so if you imagine his left hand was upturned and he had the two wires, like one wrapped around a finger and one wrapped around a thumb, all he had to do was invert his hand, put it on the, uh, the, the battery and there would have been bits and pieces of us raining all over South Bank <laughs> over the other side of the river. Um, Hang on, we're not telling people how to build... Nah, no, no, okay, we're not. There's a, lot, there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> okay, um, good. <laughs> but um, so I looked at that and thought, oh, God. So not only has he got a gun, he's got a pretty powerful improvised explosive device. Th this is just getting better. And then <laughs> one of the things you should never do is smoke over sweating jelly night. Yeah. Yeah, he had a, a common sense thing. Yeah, he had a packet of Craven A and a cigarette lighter. And uh, so then he, he, he took his right hand away from the rifle, got a cigarette out and lit it up. And I've gone, oh, God. Okay, Frank. Um, said, mate, take it easy. And he goes, what do you want one? And, I'd, <laughs> and I and I was a social smoker and uh, and I'd stopped having cigarettes and stuff. And I thought, oh, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> I'm going to go up. I so, might as well my last one. That's right. <laughs> So here I am, I've lit a cigarette with him, we're going, okay, mate, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. So so I started talking to him, and um, and I think it said something like, well, I gave up, it probably isn't a bad time to start again. And uh, <laughs> and then I, I just started talking to him and said, so what are you doing here? What, what's going on? Um, and I think this is, again, one of those things where not looking like a cop or not acting like a cop absolutely pays dividends. Because had I gone in there with a, a typical detective attire, suit and tie, you know, um, that look, I, 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 it would have been harder to make a, a connection with him. Um, yeah. So I just started talking to him. I said, so what are you doing, mate? And he said, uh, it's not me to blow the place up. I said, okay. And, and we talked. I said, okay, so why? What, what's it all about? What it transpired was, um, and this is the short version, as I was in there with him for about an hour and a half, um, he had been to Vietnam. Uh, he was an engineer, combat engineer, and a combat engineer is um, someone who blows up buildings. Oh, sorry, blows up bridges, um, dismantles bombs, makes bombs, that sort of thing. And they're, they're the they're so called. He knew sabbers. what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, he'd uh, he was like a lot of veterans. He'd he'd come back with real issues, and he'd uh, had a failed marriage. Um, he had a child from a relationship and the mother he was paying maintenance to. Um, he, I think he was working as a lowly paid council worker or something. Then he'd lost his job. He hadn't been able to make the payments. Um, and he went into the MLC building where his superannuation was. And 
uh, he'd made an appointment with, as he called it, some little upstart in a tie. So thank goodness I wasn't wearing a tie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, who'd laughed at him when he said he wanted to cash his superannuation, and he'd laughed at him because he'd said, "Oh, you cash it in, mate. You're going to pay us fees. You know, you're actually going to owe us money." So that was on the Friday. Um, he had, sorry, that was on the Thursday. He'd then gone home. So the Friday he'd stewed about it, um, then went to, uh, I think he, he drank at a bowls club and got on the gas at the bowls club, gave his dog tags, his army dog tags to the barmaid because he liked the barmaid. Then he went home, got up the next morning, dug up this jellic knight from wherever he had it buried, which is why it was so decomposed, um, made the bomb at home, then got his rifle, strapped it to his back, got on a trail bike, like a little 175cc trail bike, which is not the most stable thing in the world either, and put this bloody um, cardboard box on his lap, put his army webbing on, and that becomes important later, <laughs> put his army webbing on and rode this motorcycle into town with a rifle strapped across his back on the Saturday. Right. And no, so no one, th so a no one thought it was weird that he was riding around with a rifle strapped to his back, mm -hmm. and b why did he ha why did he bury it in the first place? Why did he have? I never found out. I didn't. I didn't actually ask him that. I I just suspect that you know, like a lot of people, he just collect. Look, a lot of Queenslanders in those days collected stuff that could kill you. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like uh, the Wild West, Keith. Oh, it was. It was a very interesting place. So so just to digress slightly, when the gun laws were changed after Port Arthur, a mm -hmm. number of Queenslanders saw that as a government conspiracy to disarm the population, so they buried a shitload of guns, and they're probably all still buried up there. Um, someone, told me, um, someone told me that there was a huge amount of uh, PVC piping that got sold at the same yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Yep, absolutely right. And so there's, there's guns buried up there all over the place. Mm. So, um, so the other thing was no police saw him, thank God, because, geez, if he'd been intercepted by cops and they didn't know what they were doing, it could have been, you know, catastrophe. Um, so anyway, we sat there, talked about all that, and uh, then I said, okay, so what's it going to take for you to give me the rifle? Because clearly you don't need a rifle now, mate. You've got, you know, you've got something to blow something up. And and this and his whole um, his mood swings were massive. He he was he was calm literally one minute and then raging the next. You know, so um, just all over the place, the poor bugger. And and in those days we had pages. So I know for the younger listeners, pages are these little things that sit on your belt long before mobile phones were invented. And if someone wanted you, they'd ring a certain number and say, "I want page one, two, three, four, five." And you get a beep and a little message will appear on your pager. Yeah? Yeah. So I'm wearing one of those. So I, I spoke to him and said, okay, mate, what, you know, give me the rifle. In essence, he then, he then said, I'll give you the rifle for a half a dozen beers. And I went, well, yeah, no, it's not going to happen because that's against the rules. However, we're smoking over sweaty jelly nights. <laughs> Let me see if I can get you one pot of beer. Would you give me the rifle? And he said, yeah, absolutely, I would. So I went outside and, uh, and thankfully the inspector of police, the commissioned officer who turned up was... Um, the guy who'd been with me when we'd shot and killed Mullen on that morning. So we knew each other very well. And uh, and I just said to him, look, mate, it's against the rules, but if we get a pot of beer, make it light, 
I can get the rifle off him. And and good police work. He said, uh, he said, Jesus, mate, if this goes to shit, then I'm going to blame you. You know that, don't you? And I said, I expect so because I'll be dead. And, <laughs> and so, so we uh, we dispatched a detective to go and uh, and there was a bar just around the corner, and he brought back a, a pot of light beer, another packet of cigarettes because you know we're almost out. And so, so I walked back in with the beer and the and the cigarettes and gave them to Frank, and he handed me the rifle and just chuckled. He said I was out of bullets anyway. Damn it! So got the rifle. <laughs> Then um, I had a sense of humour. Then um, <laughs> then we just talked, you know, I was, I was then focused on talking to him about, you know, um, there's a better way than suicide. There's a better way than this. You know, you'll get more attention if you come with me because I'll make sure that the right journalist gets the story. And, uh, and you know, just really a genuine conversation because I felt so sorry for him. And When you, when you came out, mm. obviously this seems there's more more coppers there and it's getting mm. bigger and, you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. At any point did a negotiator turn up and go, what the hell are you doing in there? Uh, well, see, I was pretty assertive and volatile in those days. So <laughs> I, 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 they were, I, oh, shit, keeps in there, <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> I, one, one did turn up. The actual, the special weapons guys turned up as well and they were the next iteration of the team. They were all full-time, fantastically trained, you know, fit young blokes. And I said, right, because if you go in, he's going to detonate and you're going to die. So I can get him out, I reckon. And the negotiators turned up at the same time. And I said something like, get the fuck away. I'm the one who's talking to him. I don't give, you know. Anyway, so we had that assertive conversation. And um, <laughs> You asked him politely to leave you to it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what happened. And um, <laughs> and so I went, I went back in um, and we talked about that. And I just, and, and a couple of, and this is where the funny stuff, you've got to have a sense of humour about stuff, really, because we were sitting, we were sitting in the foyer, there was a, a large plate glass window right beside us. When Frank had stormed in, he'd fired either one or two shots through the plate glass window to terrify the security guard who was sitting in the foyer and, you know, told him to leave. Now, little did both of us know at that stage that, or remember, or think about, that when you fire bullets through plate glass, large plate glass windows, it actually causes an ongoing consequence, which is that that will often shatter and fall everywhere. <laughs> so we're sitting there now. I'll draw your attention back to the unstable jellic night. So we're sitting there and going, okay, I reckon I can talk to him, blah, blah. And he's all calmed down. When I'd gone out, yeah, you're right, there were cops everywhere. There were bloody people everywhere and cameras and cops and cars and people running around with shotguns. And he could see that movement. He'd started to panic about it. He said, you know, tell him not to come in. I'll, I'll kill us all. I'll kill us all. I went, okay, mate, no problem. So I went back out again and just said, tell everyone to stop and just calm down and back off. You know, because if this thing goes up, it, will, it would have taken a lot of us with it because of uh, shrapnel. So if something explodes, it goes through glass, and the glass then becomes shrapnel. Yeah, so the whole blast pressure wave would have probably killed people in, you know, the surrounding, I don't know, 100 metres, who'd know. Anyway, so calm the so way down. How yep. calm are you talking to him sitting there, engaging him in conversation when he's quite erratic in his behaviour? How calm are you? Are you shitting yourself? Um, I was, but but again, without seeming like a tosser, um, a lot of people <laughs> have said, <laughs> a lot of people have said to me that when, um, 
when I was in dangerous situations, I was just really cool. And and yeah. and I've actually called high speed pursuits where people haven't believed me when I'm just going, you know, we're in pursuit here, blah blah blah. With him, I yeah, I was calm. Yeah, um, I didn't want to match his mood. I didn't want to upset him. But I actually had a sense of calm because I I remember thinking, I'm going to get him out of this. I, I'm actually going to, this is going to be something that I can do. Um, whilst all the time thinking, shit, if this thing goes up, we're screwed. And, and you just, you know, it's funny. When you're in a situation like that, there is this eerie calm that comes over you because running away wouldn't have solved anything. Because mm. I still would have been dead. Um, How many so, hostages were there in the? No, no, none. No, it's just he and I. Um, huh. But but something else happened as well. <laughs> as we so so think back about the plate glass window, right? That's that's just doing its own thing. It's going to collapse at some point. Neither of uh-huh. us knew it would. So I've calmed him down. Blah blah blah. You know. And then as we're talking, the um, elevator. So we're near the bank of elevators. The elevator goes ding. Out comes this guy in a, uh, a business attire and just with an attitude. Now, he's walked out and looked at me and looked at Frank, and Frank was this overweight, bearded dude sitting there with army webbing and a uh, and a big cardboard box full of explosives. So this fellow had a briefcase in his, in his hand, and I'd been told the building had been cleared. Um, anyway, he comes out, he looks at me, and he goes, and who might you two be? Oh. And I said, I looked at him and said, what the hell, are, who are you? So I, I'm embarrassed. I have my chambers up here. What are you doing in my building? And, you know, and Frank started to go off. And, and this is one of those things where you form a, um, a symbiotic relationship, I think, and the theory is. And, uh, and I, I said, mate, let me handle it. And I got up and stood there and just said to this guy, get the fuck out of here, you idiot. Um, police, this is a police situation. And he goes, well, you're a very rude young man. And I said, <laughs> So I grabbed him and marched and, and sort of frog marched him to the front and, and I was playing a little bit of street theatre as well, you know, so I'm fuck this, fuck that, etc. because that then, in my mind, was helping the relationship with Frank. So it's us against them, if you get my yeah. drift. And, yeah. and bear in mind, Fiona, I, I was making this up as I was going along. And um, so I get him to the front and I've said, now, fuck off. And, uh, and I've turned back to walk towards Frank and Frank started screaming. Yeah, you know, just going off his nut. And I turned around, and this clown is behind me. He's taken a notebook, a little notebook out of his briefcase, and he's got a pen in his hand. He says, I demand to know your name and rank. And, oh. <laughs> and seriously, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, and my I, God. Did you I, find out who this, this barrister was? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I literally grabbed him by the throat and dragged him back to the front door and shoved him out of the front door of this big building and said, someone get this fucking idiot out of here. And You're, um, you're lucky that you got a commendation for this in not a written warning. <laughs> oh, oh, exactly. Because, well, by that stage, didn't really care about any of that. Um, he, um, he went, he wrote me a letter after it was all over. <laughs> And I really wish I'd kept it, but I just think I just laughed at it, scrunched up and threw it away. And it was, it was worse to the effect of, dear Detective Sergeant, yeah, I was a Detective Sergeant, yeah? dear Detective Sergeant Banks, when I left and saw all the police, I realised that you were indeed the real thing, yeah? And he said, and then I, I was so I was so stressed, I, <laughs> I went home and had a stiff drink and a lie down. 
<laughs> I, I do forgive you for your use of such bad language because I understand it was necessary. Kind regards, Wilberforce, Mama. bloody Smythe Jones, barrister at law. And uh, I've gone, oh, you dick. Anyway, so... I take it that was not his real name. No, I just made that up. But, um, <laughs> but it just gives you an indication of the personality. So I remember I went back over to Frank and said, okay, mate, everything's calm. So I've calmed him down again. At that point, the glass wall decided to shatter everywhere. <gasps> And we both jumped, and he thought it was a SWAT team coming to get him. Yeah. And I, I thought it was the, the bomb going off. I just went, oh, God, does this get me? Was this going to stop? So that was all calmed down. So was and it then, after the the glass fell? Was that yeah. the front of the building? So it was sitting out open? No, no. This no. This was um. This was a so it was a panel that was beside us that led into the cafeteria, um, just right. off the foyer. So. Um, so then I've got up, gone outside and said, everything's okay, guys. It's just the glass wall that shattered, blah, blah, blah. I came back in. Now, all the time this is happening, Mal, the uniform guy I've told you about, never left my side. The only time he'd leave my side is if I gave him something to take outside. Yeah. Or, oh, or so go he was in there with, with you? Yeah. It wasn't a yeah. do it. Oh. No, no. I, I, I just love and respect him so much for that because he knew how volatile it was as well. Um, so back into Frank, blah, blah, blah. Okay, mate, you know, calm everything down. You know, what do we need to do to uh, to, to get over this? And at that, that stage, my pager went off, beep, 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 and he went off again. You know, it was like, tell them you're with me and tell them this and da, ba ba and C words here and there. And um, and I said, mate, can I just read it? And I picked it up and it was my girlfriend <laughs> because I was supposed to meet her in the city and pick her up about 3.30. And so she's paged me to go, where are you? You're late. And I just looked at it and went, oh, Jesus. And he said, what is it? And I said, mate, it's my chick. I'm, I'm going to be in big trouble because I was supposed to meet her, but I'm with you. And that's when he said, um, well, when you get home tonight, she'll understand. And I thought, aha, gotcha. Yeah, even though yeah. even though he, he hadn't agreed to go with me, he hadn't. I, I just thought, damn, because now you're saying I'm going to get out of this, which means you are too. So that, that just gave me a whole sense of confidence just to continue the, the conversation. Until <laughs> he reached into a little pocket in the webbing and said, oh, I probably should have told you I had this. And he pulled out a hand grenade. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. And again, you can't make this up. And Jesus, did the army have any supplies left after this guy? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> did you find a tank in his backyard as well? You... <laughs> I tell you, I, I, I remember, I, and this is, this is as vivid as it, uh, today as it was then because you you know you've got to have a sense of humor about these things and I remember looking at it thinking what the hell now <laughs> right so then and, and I'd said before he was up and down and, and the poor guy was he was just all over the place and and he looked at me and he pulled the pin out of the hand grenade now with a hand grenade if you pull the pin out as long as you keep the firing lever depressed and I'm actually You're sitting I'm sitting here in my study <laughs> demonstrating it. <laughs> yeah, I'm if you thinking keep... of every army movie I've ever, you know, action movie I've ever seen. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So when they throw it, then the firing lever um, is it, it flies away from the, the grenade and then you have about three to four seconds before it detonates. So um, I remember looking at it going, oh, Jesus. And I just said something to him like, mate, can you put the pin back? And he said, no. Nah. If this is your chance, Keith, I'm going to. If you stay here, I'm going to kill us both. And I and I said, um, 
and this was this was after the shooting where Peter had been murdered, and and I was and I was still having nightmares and all sorts of stuff then, and I said to him, Frank, I've got enough fucking nightmares in my life now. I'm not going to let you be another one. Can you just put the pin back? And and I and I think he then saw something in me that reflected the stuff he was going through. I like mm. to think that because he looked at me for about 30, 30 seconds is a long damn time. And um, and then he just he didn't say a word. He put the pin back in and just handed me the grenade. And he was an ex-Vietnam vet, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I gave the, the hand grenade to Mel. <laughs> I just said, I, I think this is the last one, mate. And uh, he took it outside and gave it to the bomb squad. Did you ask him if you had anything else, any other surprises? Um. I think I may have actually. I, I actually I can't remember. I, I think I may have said something. Is that it? You know, or something like that. Um, and then uh, and then I just talked him into coming out with me, and and I promised him that I wouldn't handcuff him. That was one thing he said. He said I don't want to go out in handcuffs. I said no, mate, you won't. I promise you that. Um, and I walked out with him and got into a police car and then drove him straight to the Royal Brisbane Hospital um, to be assessed mentally. Hang on. So hang on a minute. He hands you the grenade. Yep. Uh, how did he go from having a grenade and putting the pin back in and handing that to you to then surrendering? Took about five minutes, I reckon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's what he said. He said, he said, if I if I actually put this wire down and come with you, and I and uh, and I said, yeah. He said, don't take me out in handcuffs. And that was it. That was. So I think after the hand grenade situation, he'd actually decided that I was okay. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it, it it was, and it had really started when he said, when I'd read him the thing from my girlfriend. So when you get home, she'll understand. And 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 it was just one of those really surreal things that you know, he Even just quickly, he just really, he just really quickly decided that that was it. And I walked out with him, as I said, took him to the hospital with the intention of having him committed for psychiatric testing because I can't remember the, the mental health provisions, but you certainly had an ability to have someone put into care for, you know, 24, 48 hours to be assessed. And I went up there and as we sat there for two hours, so I'd just been with him for an hour and a half going through the whole, I'm going to die, no, I'm not, I'm going to die, no, I'm not, I'm going to die, no, I'm not. Then I sat there with him for two hours and we just had a general conversation with some detectives around us. And the doctor finally came out and spoke with him, I kid you not, for maybe 10 minutes and came out and said, no, nah, I'm not going to commit him. He's completely sane. And I said, no, he's not, mate. And I, I went off tap at the doctor, which, you know, understandable. But um, no, they refused to. Just You're rebuffed. lucky that the doctor didn't say, we're not going to commit him, but Keith, come this way. <laughs> Well, I, well, I tell you, in all in all honesty, the doctor is lucky you didn't end up with a straight right to the face because I was just angry that this poor yeah. guy was clearly, clearly not in a good space. So he was then taken away and interviewed and charged. Um, How did you get the bomb off him? He just he just simply put the um, uh, the cardboard box from his lap onto the floor and right. then um, made sure that the detonator wires were on the other side away from the. Um, away from the battery and just stood up and walked out with me. And the bomb squad were outside and they were mates of mine anyway. So they sent the, the bomb disposal robot in and uh, and made sure the device was safe, etc. What year was this, Keith, remind me? Um, 93, I think. Okay. Yeah, 93. 
how did you feel when he, when you were walking out with him when it was all over? Um, it's it's one of the best feelings I've had because I realised that the darkness that I had, the homicidal feelings that I'd had for quite some time for for revenge for Peter, were actually gone. You know, because I went there with the intention of shooting him, and I walked out saving his life. And to compound that and and, and really probably help me recover from that, when um, I went and gave evidence in the magistrate's court committal hearing, so committal is where the, the evidence is heard, then um, referred to a jury in the district court. He um, he was sitting in the witness box, sitting in the in the dock, and I gave evidence, and his barrister asked what I thought about his mental condition, and I, I was I was quite honest. I just said, yeah, look, I, I in my view, he wasn't he wasn't thinking rationally. And anyway, I did all that. And when I walked up to leave the court, he motioned me over and um, reached his hand out and shook my hand and said, thanks for saving my life, mate, which oh, just made nice. me feel great. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. nice. So there, that's the un, um, that was just another quiet Saturday in Brisbane. And is that in your current book, Drugs, um, Guns Yes, it is, yeah. It, and in fact, that was the first chapter I wrote um, when I started, to, when I decided to start writing stuff down. Because... Go and get it, people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is the ch- this will be in my second book, not the first one. Oh, it's the second mm, one. Mm, yeah, okay. Well, you yeah. still got to go out and get drugs, guns, and lies, and then you got to get the second one when that comes out. Well, yeah. I mean, drugs, guns, and lies. Look at the transformation from the innocent young bloody seventeen-year-old kid that I was that didn't drink or smoke um, or do anything really, and uh, and what I was like about three or four years later. My God, I'm loving story time with Keith. <laughs> I, I am going to run out of them sooner or later, you know. It's only no. only twenty years. <laughs> oh, we've still got another nineteen years and six months to go. <laughs> they, not every day was like that, you know, Fiona. There were some days where I did bugger all. Um, <laughs> all right, everyone, go out and get the book. Um, Keith's pleasure. And I'm looking forward to more stories. Always, always, Fiona. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.